Disruptive CEO Nation is the place where young entrepreneurs and company founders tell it like it is when it comes to their journey, vision, technology, culture, and whatever they feel like. Your host, Allison K. Summers, believes how you choose to play the world is completely up to you, and her guests prove it. Now let's get disruptive. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Disruptive CEO Nation. This is Allison Kay. I am thrilled about our guest today. She has been featured in Inc. and Forbes, Business Insider, and lots of other publications. She is an award-winning designer who has a wonderful founder story, who's building a great company, and she has a very interesting philosophy around how to take care of her workforce. So without further ado, I would like to welcome Misha Cora. Misha, tell everybody who you are, what you do, your company, and all that good stuff. Hi, everyone. My name is Misha Cora, and I'm the CEO and founder of Darlinghurst Enterprises. It's a multi-brand holding company that's in the luxury retail and luxury manufacturing business. And so, Misha, when you say luxury, I, I want to clarify for our listening audience because I want them to go look at your, your website and find you, but you are really the highest end of the luxury market that you're, you're reaching for. And I guess more of an immersion brand, is that correct? Yes. So we have acquired um, an alt couture label that I haven't disclosed yet because we're announcing it in a very big press release um, at the end of quarter two. I also have my own label, which is a luxury women's wear label at the absolute highest end of the market. We dress socialized royalty and celebrities. And I also have a luxury garment factory that is dedicated to empowering women to rise from the working class to the middle class. So before we go more into what you do today um, and the products that you deliver, tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you became an entrepreneur and how you fell into um, building this wonderful brand that you're, you're on the path to, to create for the world. Thank you. So I'm um, something of a social entrepreneur, um, serial social entrepreneur, I should say. I started my first company, uh, which was an educational products provider called Vocab Tunes when I was 11. I published six linguistics textbooks between the ages of 18 to 22 and then passed on leadership to my younger brother, who's about to start medical school. Um, I started my second company, Dermatel, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, when I was 18 because I wanted to make a difference in the dermatology healthcare sector um, after, you know, I had my best friend die of skin cancer. So I wanted to, you know, do something about that. And I still run it um, part time, like on a volunteer basis. Um, after graduating college, I decided to work in wealth management for a few years to invest earnings I had made um, from ro royalties from selling my books. I studied the retail equity markets for a long time and realized that I had a lot of passion and knowledge about the area. So after studying the growth potential of e-commerce and the manufacturing potential of in-house uh, work, you know, following the example from Inditex, which is one of the most profitable retail slash real estate holding companies in the world. I mean, they own Zara, they own all these uh, retail properties. I really wanted to do something sort of at the intersection of retail manufacturing and real estate and so i decided to start my own company called darlinghurst enterprises um, instead of being at the you know the mass market or the lower mass market which is what inditex does i wanted to do something similar at the absolute highest end of the luxury market so realizing that you know i had a very strong business background i was a top student in college i decided 
you know, look, I need to get some work experience actually inside a workroom, uh, you know, as, you know, at a, at a top design studio. So I got myself an apprenticeship. I did a, f- a few internships that were totally unpaid where like I was doing everything from getting coffee for senior senior designers to actually sewing the hems of dresses that were worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in an haute couture atelier. Um, so after a little bit of that, I decided, you know, I'm going to enroll in graduate school and switch the focus of my PhD from medicine to, you know, textile science and design management. And so I ended up doing that. And it was a really great decision because even though I'm 26, I have a lot of experience in a variety of sectors, which I think makes it easier to implement the kind of changes and vision I have because, you know, I have the equivalent of like a 40-year-old level of work experience. Well, Misha, I think it's it's incredible as I've gotten to know you, the pieces of your story, because you're highly educated and, and I'm sure anybody listening to this understands how motivated you are. But, but the piece of your story because I can envision it as you're talking about getting the coffee and sewing the hems on dresses, like to say my vision is so strong that I'm going to go out and do this stuff for free or in an internship and really, and really learn it. Um, I don't think a lot of people would take that tactic today. So um, did your family ever think that you were crazy along this path? Oh my God. Yeah. They were just like, Misha, we're going to disown you. And I like kid you not, like I'm, I'm out of the will and everything, (laughs) (laughs) which is okay because I told my parents, I'm like, just like, I'll just like show you like how much success and value I'm going to create. And so I think that when we go public, my parents will be like, Oh look, you know, my daughter wasn't crazy after all, but I mean, they (laughs) love me. They just, they're just kind of like, why would you do fashion? You know, because they, you know, I'm from a very well-educated family. My parents are doctors. So, I mean, my mom's an accountant and my dad's a doctor. So they were like, you know, do something traditional, like, you know, get in a higher level of investment banking, do something prestigious. But, you know, I, I really feel like there's so much intellectual depth in fashion that, that often gets ignored by people that are not in creative industries. And I really feel like artisanship is a value. It's, um, it's, it's a feeling, it's a movement, and I really want to make a difference um, in this field because it's something that I really am passionate about. So we like to talk with our guests about their, their technology and the technology that, that they're employing. So I don't know if you'd like to share with us about um, what you do online or, or how you're going to market in, in your garment manufacturing. Um, so what can you share with our audience? Well, I have a great project management software called Monday.com, which helps the whole team in terms of delegating, in terms of global fashion, much like they do at Kirkland Ellis, which is one of the best law firms in the world in terms of innovative project management. And I want to give people the ability to choose what projects they want to work on. So a lot of people um, in you know competitor garment factories that actually was inside the workshops when I was doing my internship, so I had firsthand knowledge of this from the absolute bottom level, you know, with like um, the lowest of the low job titles, which is intern, unpaid intern. So I was literally at the bottom of, so I I had an understanding of what it was like for someone at the absolute bottom of, you know, the hierarchy, a very rigid hierarchy within a garment factory. And I wanted to make sure that when I built my own company, that any, every, like literally every single person from the, the lowest of the lowest ranking intern to the highest of the highest level project management person and CEO would have the ability to pick their projects because I really hate it when people that like specialize in chiffon, right? They, they're, they're assigned to tweed and they don't want to work on tweed, you know, 
they're not a woven person. They they much prefer working with chiffon. Or let's say they're they're someone that has particular dexterity and embroidery, but they've been assigned to a job they don't particularly like, which is sweeping the floors. I mean, I think that everybody, regardless of their title, their name, their age, what school they went to, should have the ability to choose what they want to do whenever they want to do it at a time frame where they're they're working at their optimal um, efficiency. I studied a lot of John Molloy's book. Uh, how to work the competition into the ground. And I believe very strongly that you have to bring out the best in people. And you do this through innovative project management, where it's not a top down, it's a bottom up management style, where everybody feels empowered to take on what they want to do and to do it in a way and in a timeline that works for them. As long as things are done under budget and people are incentivized, people get their work done extremely well. People don't need to be looked down upon or stared at in order to get their sewing done. And so I think because we have a very strongly, tightly knit um, foundation in place, when we end up hiring more people and expanding, I'll be able to take that same employee first mentality to everything that, that we do. Because I think when you take care of your people, they take care of the business. You know what I mean? I think it's really important that people feel that they have a voice because I remember what it was like when I was the one getting coffee and I had no voice. So I, I never want anyone to feel like that. And, and Misha, I know there's a lot of people who might be listening going, oh, oh, wait, that, that's pretty extreme. But, but you not only do that, you, you go the extra step with some of the workers that you have today. And correct me if I'm wrong, but, but you take care of their, their child care and you take care of more things than just an average paycheck. Is that not correct? Yeah, it's, it's correct. I, you know, I'm 26. I mean, I have no husband, no children yet. So I'm getting married soon. Um, but, you know, I feel really strongly that people, you know, if, they, if they're if they a working mom, let's say they're a single mom, they, they deserve child care. They deserve these perks because I didn't actually know that people were in a position where they didn't have these things at other garment factories because, you know, I don't have children myself. It was hard for me to understand that, you know, it's very difficult when someone has, you know, a 5.30 p.m. worker deadline, but then their child has to be picked up from school at 3.30. So you have to create flexibility in the workday so that people are able to do these things, particularly when someone is a single mom who has no husband support, who has no babysitter, no nanny. And most of the people working in garment factories are in this position. They do not have a spouse that's able to help them or divide the childcare responsibility, nor do they have any support because a lot of them are former people that were on welfare. So I wanted to create a movement where it's not just a paycheck, it's it's a family and so, I mean, I don't have, you know, a massive childcare facility. It's just a small room with some toys and a lady I found on Craigslist who's, you know, helping me out by charging $12 an hour. But it's, it's the most I can do at the best I can do at this point. But, you know, when we have more money and when we are a bigger company, a public company, um, it, it'll be a much bigger facility. But right now, I'm just doing the best I can. I mean, I would like to eventually be at a point where we have everybody you know, has a shuttle bus that so that their children are picked up from school in the morning or dropped off at school in the morning and then picked up after school so that this way they're able to stay at the factory longer. And the children have a sense of camaraderie in terms of, you know, all their moms work together so that they're all friends. And, you know, it creates a really nice, um, holistically run um, organization. Well, and I think what's so impressive is that you know, you're, you're demonstrating and living it now. And, and I can envision in your future, a, a fully nice, you know, beautiful daycare facility, because you've, 
you've built it into your business philosophy now. So you shared that you have one um, factory, garment factory in Georgia, but that as part of, of your beliefs, you've actually worked with um, the government officials and you're going to start another factory in Detroit. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I'm a Bloomfield Hills girl, born and raised. So I always wanted to you know, do something for the people of Detroit because I grew up in a very privileged environment. And there was this huge divide between, you know, the privilege of where I grew up and what, you know, working people in the working class deal with when they're in downtown Detroit. And so, you know, given the progress that's been made with Shinola, which is in the luxury watchwear business, I wanted to do something in terms of garments, um, also in Detroit. And the Detroit economic environment is really improving. And I think that by opening a larger factory and by offering free housing, you know, in Detroit to people that may not have had housing before, or maybe they were in, um, you know, a women's shelter, you know, they're able to work as long as they have the skill and they have the ability to learn, they have a job opportunity. And it's really important to me to, you know, make this kind of difference because I think that when God has given you a lot and God has given you an excellent education, you have to make the most of that and give back to society because that's where, that's where the satisfaction comes from you know, from making a difference. So let's, let's flip a little and go back to um, the building of your business. And I know you felt very passionate about um, your philosophy around you need to bootstrap your own business until it reaches a certain point of success before you want to approach other people to help fund. So can you share your philosophy on that with our listeners? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing for me has always been profitability alongside growth. And if the choice is between profitability and growth, you always have to choose profitability. I mean, I know how much nonsense is out there in terms of business books about how growth is better than profits, but it's all baloney. Growth is what's what's better for venture capitalists. Growth is not necessarily best for entrepreneurs. VCs want to be able to say that their investments are growing, even if the startup in question is not yet profitable or has no plan to become profitable. Um, But if you're out there on your own bootstrapping, you have to be laser focused and make sure every single decision you make is making a difference for your business, for your employees, for your customers. And number one is making you profitable because the reality is that business is about profitability, no matter what anybody else says. I look at companies, you know, such as Snapchat, Spotify, Farfetch, all of them are massive companies and very well funded, all run by men. But none of them have ever turned a profit, and they never will be because the founders don't really have the inherent acumen. I mean, if you want to be disruptive, if you want to make a difference, you have to have the natural acumen for reading the marketplace, reading your employees, understanding what they want, and delivering them to not only your customers but also to your employees, and to focus on the numbers. You know, ideas, execution, so on are great, but profits are the number one thing that differentiates success failure because that's what you're judged on when you're a public company people want to see quarter after quarter are you delivering the returns and the values to shareholders because for me it's all about delivering shareholder value i really think that that's what i was put on earth to do was to create shareholder value and that i mean that's what i've dedicated my life to i mean i'm extremely focused on the numbers and the only time to pursue vc is when you have four quarters minimum of profitability and the only time to go public is when you have six quarters of profitability um I have, you know, I have achieved five quarters of profitability, so I'm now pursuing VC. And, you know, in a few years, I intend to be a public company. And I think people will feel confident investing in the business because they will see, you know, the record. They'll see everything. And I, 
fully intend to start making things public um, even before we're a public company by releasing results on the YouTube so people can see, you know, they can see me, they can see the new CFO I got, and they can see our dedication to creating that shareholder value. Because even though we only have five shareholders right now, uh, we're, we're going to have more in the future. And I have always been a forward-thinking girl and a forward-minded um, entrepreneur, and I believe very strongly in delivering those returns. So you sound like you have so much together. You sound like it's, it's all humming along, but, but we know no journey has perfection. Um, can you possibly share with us some of the lessons that you've had to learn along the way? Because like I said, if you were just listening, it, it sounds like it, it's all, all roses, it's all perfect, but this is really hard work. Oh, absolutely, and it's also very lonely. The hardest lesson I've had to learn along the way is that not everybody is going to be happy for, for my success. Um, you know, people want you to do well, but they don't want you to do better than them. And this is especially true for people that call themselves friends but are not necessarily friends. You know, you can't please everyone, particularly people who knew you when you were younger and less confident in yourself. You know, when I grew up, I was very shy. I had a really hard time with public speaking, but I enrolled myself in Toastmasters, and Toastmasters gave me a lot of confidence. So some people I knew growing up were like, oh, you're so shy. Why are you going and giving lectures or you're going and giving interviews and you know they, they they remember me what I was like when I was you know in high school and like could barely open my mouth in front of the class and now you know I'm much more confident in myself so you can't let um, you know people's previous conceptions of you or misconceptions of you cloud your current reality you know at some point you have to cut off toxic people who want to drag you down with pessimism and negativity in my case I had to create an entirely new circle of supportive people who believe in me, believe in my goals and where the business is going. And I've also, you know, gotten to a point where I only share my um, successes and my goals with people in my mastermind group. I really recommend any budding entrepreneur read the book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. That mm -hmm. book gave, gave me so much confidence in myself and gave me the self-belief and the positive mindset that enabled me to achieve what I have and what I hope to do in the future. You know, and we talk with entrepreneurs that as you're scaling up and on your journey, I mean, you, you talked about like your, your circle of, of friends and the people that support you. And, and I completely agree with you. Don't, don't share your innermost dreams that you know are, are going to be a reality with people who aren't going to profess and, and share and embrace that vision with you. But I think the hard thing is, is people that start with you today still might not make it with you in the future. You know, we've, we've got to change up. And that's, that's a hard lesson for recognizing um, when, when your group does that. So I, I agree with you. Masterminds are fantastic. I mean, I have an executive coach, an executive mastermind. And even though I work with other people, I need to be fed as well. So great, great thoughts. Any other thoughts for up and coming disruptive CEOs? I think you've, you've given us a lot of words of wisdom that you've experienced on your journey, but anything else that you yeah. wanted to share? Just, just one thing. I mean, don't try to build Rome in one day. The best companies are built on a strong foundation, no matter what the press is hyping up about the, the latest company that you know, that it's growing, you know, 300% in one year. 
um, in terms, you know, but without having the profitability. I mean, focus first and foremost on profitability above literally everything else. No matter how much VCs try to pressure you to change your values, you know, focus on the profitability because a lot of times the, the runway on VC runs out. And I have so many friends that are in Silicon Valley, people I went to college, you know, people with whom I went to college, people that I know from, you know, junior league that got tripped up in this, this trying to keep up with the Joneses VC thing. And it's, it's just not healthy. You know, it's perfectly fine to be an entrepreneur with a small business and to run that business extremely well for an extremely long amount of time without bringing in outside capital. You don't have to keep up with the Joneses unless, you know, you are ready for that kind of rat race. You know, judge yourself by whatever goals you have for yourself. If you feel good about yourself, you're a success. Don't try to compare yourself to other people or what people in, you know, tech crunch are doing. You know, look at yourself in the mirror and be proud of who you are. I want to come back to your company and because I don't think we shared enough with our listeners the the types of things if we go to the Mishikura brand um, that you do. And it is very high-end, ultra-luxury, um, as you've shared with us, your, your clothing, um, some of the, the world's most unique individuals, um, but that lets you fulfill your social mission as well. But again, give us some things that you have in your portfolio. You have dresses, you have, what else do you have under the brand? Yeah, so I have, um, I have dresses that are ready to wear, um, that are shown seasonally um, in Paris. Formerly, I was showing in New York at New York Fashion Week, but I decided that um, my aesthetic and my long-term vision is to be in Paris and to be um, established there. So, um, so I shifted the company to, to the brand to Paris, not the company, the, the brand to Paris. So the Misha Cora label specializes in you know, luxury ready-to-wear, luxury me- made-to-measure, and we offer everything from wedding dresses to wedding gowns to you know, maid-of-honor uh, gowns to mother-of-the-bride gowns. Um, outside of just dresses, we do a lot of um, embroidered accessories, highly embroidered jewelry in terms of bracelets, as well as fine jewelry. And we have an innovative offering called the handbag stock, where people can measure the level of their handbag in terms of the valuation, which changes hourly, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, at the handbag stock on Instagram. And so this gives uh, customers an ability to really engage with the label and know that they're, they're buying and holding on to valuable handbags that are increasing in value over time. I mean, my goal has always been to sort of dispel the notion that fashion is disposable and make fashion seen as an investment. You know, we see accessories, we see jewelry as investments, but we need to start seeing fashion as an investment. And so none of my clothes ever go on sale. They actually increase in value over time. So when they're at the retail stores, you know, they're the, the price that they're going to be for that particular season. And when that season is over, they double in price because my clothes appreciate in value over time. And I want women that buy my apparel to know that it's an investment piece. You know, when you're buying a $1,750 dress, that's, you know, my lowest end price for ready to wear. That, that dress is going to last you for the rest of your life, and you can pass it on to your daughter. These are investment pieces. They're not just buy it and then chuck it at the end of the season. You know, they, they, they really are meant to be heirlooms. Um, furthermore, my made-to-measure is, you know, for royalty, socialites, and the like. I've done a lot of work for celebrities on red carpets, um, but that's, that's a smaller portion of the business. So if we come back 
and talk to you again in a few years. Where will we be? What can we expect from Darlene Hurst and, and from you as a business leader? Well, two years from now, I'd like uh, Darling Hurst Enterprises to be a publicly listed company on the New York Stock Exchange, profitable quarter after quarter, delivering those those returns to investors. You know, I see my business having a fully salaried workforce of like over 100 people with much more complex project management workflows. I think, you know, the future of business, particularly retail, is extremely bright right now. I think we're going to see more customer-centric retail concepts that engage and inspire customers, not only to shop, but also to engage in the history, the meaning, and the creators of those products, you know, the people behind the scenes that are sewing and assembling products in my label and the label I acquired. I also see a lot of progress happening in terms of the academic side of fashion and how that may apply to my business um, in terms of me publishing articles in uh, academic fashion journals, as well as engaging more in the academic slash experiential side of the business. Misha, I am I'm so delighted that you took time and, and shared so much with us. I think this was a really rich content. I, I can't imagine that um, you'll have any difficulty raising your VC money and fulfilling the vision that you're talking about. Um, I'm sure people want to find out more about you, um, about your brand. So tell us again um, where they should go. Um, well, I'm on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Misha Quora, which is M-I-S-H-A, last name K-A-U-R-A. I'm also available via email at I-N-F-O at MishaQuora.com. Again, that's I-N-F-O at M-I-S-H-A, last name K-A-U-R-A dot com. Again, fabulous stuff. Your, your apparel, your dresses, your things are just so beautiful. And I absolutely do believe that, that they're an investment um, and everybody should go take a look. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode of Disruptive CEO Nation, let Misha know. Um, follow her brand, follow her growth and her story. Share this interview with somebody else that you think would benefit from hearing the words of wisdom that she shared. And until we speak again, keep your eye on the future. Thank you, Misha. Thank you so much. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>